Hello, and welcome back to SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. George Northoff, a philosopher, neuroscientist, and psychiatrist who is a research chair in the mind, brain, imaging, and neuroethics. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show today, Dr. Northoff. Yeah, hello. Welcome, everybody. So to get us started, I think it'd be great to hear about your educational history and what made you pursue three related but distinct degrees. Yeah, good question. So I wanted to study, I always wanted to study philosophy originally because I had a very good uh, philosophy teacher in high school. Uh, but I wanted to study philosophy with a very concrete, uh, another concrete discipline. So then the choice was either combined philosophy with mathematic physics, which is sort of a classical uh, combination. Then the other thing was philosophy and law. And then the other thing was basically philosophy and the brain. And the mind-body problem that was sort of, at my time, and I think it's still there, is really one of the main and key problems of the times. So and in order to study the brain and the mind at the time, there was no neuroscience programs yet. You cannot even imagine nowadays. So I had to study medicine. So that's why I studied medicine, philosophy, and then, of course, neuroscience came on board. Wow, that's awesome. I, I love that you found a way to take what you were passionate about and then pair it with something, like you said, more concrete. Mm -hmm. um, I've only taken a few philosophy classes in my time at university, and I find it's it's so theoretical. I would find you sometimes need the science to ground you, but I'm sure it gives you yeah. a whole host of tools to work with. Yeah, and it was really beneficial because I'm still, because particularly if you want to research something as complex as a, a mind-brain, mind-body problem, which is really right at the interface between conceptual philosophical issues and, and empirical issues, uh, you need to have the models, and it's very important. I mean, when you look into the history of physics, uh, many uh, physicists, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, they also had a strong philosophical interest or even background. So you really need both. So you, you need the theoretical models and the empirical uh, research. So, And I'm, I'm still very happy that I did this, and I ben still benefit from it. So I would love to hear more about your research and how these three disciplines that you operate in have helped you uh, with your research questions about the brain-mind connection um, and other research projects you've been working on. Yeah, so I give you an example how the uh, interfaces of many of the famous philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 18th, 19th century in, in, in Germany, back in Germany, said, uh, basically, I rephrase it a little bit, empirical data without uh, models, theoretical models, are blind and uh, theoretical models without empirical data are empty. So, and I think that's really true. So what I do, I uh, developed over the time, a lot of models of different mental features, uh, like of the self, of consciousness, of mind wandering. Just We just recently paper, uh, published two papers on meditation on in dreams, spatial temporal models, which is based on research. And then these models also give me new ideas for what to do on the empirical research side. And then the data give me new ideas for the models. So it's a con always a circulating. Everybody who does science um, really try who tries to be discover something. You have to go back between the models, between the theory and the empirical data and goes back and forth. Um, and now we also do uh, computational models, so neural network models strongly drawing on artificial intelligence to model and simulate certain mechanism in the brain, neuronal mechanism, and how they potentially then could account for what we experience subjectively, because that's, that's ultimately, of course, my main interest. 
how is it possible that we experience something subjective uh, despite we can't see it in the brain imaging? And that is, in being a psychiatrist, um, I know you have a radio interview, you can't see me smiling now, but I still like all these mental phenomena. That's also why I became a psychiatrist, because you see a lot of interesting experiences and uh, borderline experience, but it's part of the reality and also part of the reality of our brain or more recently we go into meditation. So I'm really asking, how is this possible that you can have these subjective experiences uh, based on your brain and your body and how that is linked to the environment? And just really, for me, it's a very fascinating uh, question. Yeah, and I learn a lot. Wow, your attitude towards your work just uh, demonstrates like the perfect scientist. You really, nothing is off limits. And uh, I love how you're always updating like your hypotheses and your work and feeding back from the data to like the the theoretical side of it. I mean, the sky's the limit. I really, I really love how fascinated you are and how that just encourages you to pursue more work. That is awesome. Well, this is science. When you look into the history of science, that's what it is. Yeah. And But the most important, I mean, I remember the question will come, most important that you really enjoy what you're doing. I mean, uh, that you're fascinated by it with all these other external influences and they're important, but ultimately that you really enjoy what you do. The most that you're fascinated, that you question, that, that's what science is about, that you raise questions which others may have not seen yet. Yeah. So you raise Again, when you look into the history, the, the great discoveries always started with a question nobody else raised. They didn't see that. Darwin uh, saw that all these uh, biological species have a certain similarity, differences, and so on. So he raised the question, how is that possible? And without invoking a god, and then he said, okay, um, this, is, this is evolution. So he, he saw certain things which we couldn't see based on his questions. Yeah. And that is for me the most fast. And I spend a lot of time actually thinking about what is the next logical question? Yeah, have this uh, data, this empirical data. So what is the next question now to do what? Yeah, spend a lot of time on that. When I bike or run, I ponder about that. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just starting my research journey and I find that's a skill I'm really trying to develop is uh, figuring out how to ask those questions and like what to look at and to take into consideration. I find it's definitely a skill of its own. Um, like you said, to look at something and pick out something novel to investigate further. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certain people like it, certain others don't. And that's absolutely fair. I mean, I, you would never want me to be a cook or a carpenter. It would be a, a catastrophe. Yeah. So everybody has her or his own preferences and, and what you like, and you need to find out. Yeah. So so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what kind of techniques you're using in your lab uh, to conduct your research. Yeah, so we use a lot of lots of what is called brain imaging. So we have these, you probably have seen these colorful dots and spots on brains, what is called functional magnetic resonance imaging. And that's a particular te technique where you can really uh, scan basically what the brain regions and the different networks and the brain as a whole is doing. And that is a very good, what is called a very good spatial resolution. It gives you millimeter insight into the brain. But uh, on the temple side, the resolution is rather slow. It's in, in, in seconds, so that is very long for the brain. So there you have another technique, what is called electroencephalography or magnetic encephalography. You measure basically the electrical activity of the brain, called EEG or MEG. And that has a very high uh, millimeter, millisecond precision. 
so has a high temple precision, but of course nothing comes for free, as we all know in life. That has not a good spatial resolution. So ideally, you want a kind boy. And so that's techniques we do. And of course, there's a lot of data processing, what you do, how you analyze the data. And then more recently, we also combine that a lot with uh, artificial neural network models, so-called computational models, where we simulate uh, certain brain processes based on the data. We try to convert, for instance, your individual uh, fMRI or EEG data with the computational network model. And then we can basically simulate certain processes, how your brain will react, and uh, which, of course, you can't do in the real brain. So that's something we really do more and more, and it's uh, so also to get more into the mechanism uh, underlying what we observe. The data are just the pinnacle of underlying processes of which we have not much of an idea these days. For that, you can use the computational model. It's basically like a, you want to say, so it's a play tool, yeah? So you shift the different things and see what comes out, yeah. I can really see how that reflects the philosophy you quoted from Kant. Um, like you said, how you need all these different points of view to like analyze something as complex of the brain. You can't just use one tool. You need to use multiple, all from different faculties of neuroscience and philosophy. So that's very cool how you combine all of that and then try to interpret that. I, I mean, that must be complicated in itself to put that all together and know what you have in front of you. Well, it is indeed, but it's a lot of fun. It's like a... Let's say you, you you buy a puzzle at the shop and then you don't know how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And that's what it is. Yeah, I definitely love how you frame your work as fun. I think that is such like a positive attitude to have towards <laughs> academia, which sometimes gets a bad rep for being dry or boring. But, you know, your attitude towards it is exactly what I love to see. Yeah, see, it's a very good point what you say. I mean, academia can be very dry and draining because with all this grand stuff and all this uh, formal stuff has been overloaded by administrative issues. And it's a constraint and, and all particular for young investigators, a lot of imposition. So I think one really needs to, so I try to make myself free of that and really pursue the research. And I'm lucky enough that I can do this here that they already know that I don't like all this administrative stuff. So and as long as I... Uh, really, I mean, we're. I think we are somewhat of a productive group. So as long as that works, I mean, I really try to cover out my niche. And that's very important because you don't need to have to do everything what they tell you to do. Yeah. I mean, we usually never do this as academics, but often the circumstances are very difficult. So I can only recommend for everybody to try to cover out really a little niche for you where you keep that freedom. It's very important because it's very easy to lose the joy and become drained out. I'm sure like early on in a lot of people's careers, I mean, you kind of just want to take on the whole world when answering questions. So like you said, that probably leads to burnout pretty quickly when you take on too much too quickly. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then also they tell you, you need to do this, you need to do this. And I can, unfortunately, I have to recommend not always follow these advices. Yeah. So please, I hope that you don't uh, tell, uh, send this to administrators here. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for my next question, um, I would love to hear what you think the future of these fields uh, of neuroscience and philosophy and all those sorts of things, how they will look with like the contribution of your research and all these new tools that are being that are coming out, like you said, with those computational models. Like what does the future of your field look like? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I really so to be honest, let's let let's face it. We don't really know how brain and mind are related. We don't really know how neuronal and mental activity, consciousness, sense of self, uh, 
uh, how they related to each other. We know, let's say, I give you an analogous example from very simple. We know how the chemical formula of water is related to fluid, ice, or vapor. Yeah, we know that. Let's say, imagine if you weren't knowing that, you would assume that ice, fluid, and vapor are three different chemicals. So that's exactly, we don't know, it's often called the hard problem, we don't know the relationship, but that's for me really the key. And I hope that my own research, we have a particular model that uh, spatial temporal structures uh, provide the link between the neuronal and mental so that you have certain spatial temporal organization in your neuronal activity, and that is reflected in the spatial temporal organization of your mental features. Let's say if your brain is very slow, you also experience everything and yourself as very slow, for instance, in depression. So, and of course, uh, I hope that really that I can make a contribution to that, to better understanding this link between the brain and mind, because ultimately when you read the opening of my website, that's basically my whole life. And you, you want your life to be worth something. And the other thing, what I really hope, um, that we can translate some of that for the diagnosis and therapy of mental disorders, like depression, schizophrenia, autism, bipolar, anxiety, post-traumatic disorder, because after all, I'm also a psychiatrist, I still see some patients, and I see the suffering and the way psychiatry as a, as a medical discipline and as practice is really 20th century. And I think it really needs to get a lift. Let's say when you go to the uh, Heart Institute here in Ottawa, which is a top institute, you describe your symptoms and they do a battery of lab tests. Then based on the lab test, they go, they do ultrasound, they do x-ray and all kinds of other investigations. Nothing of that happens uh, in psychotic disorders. Trial is based on observation. And then the therapy is uh, trial and error. And I hope that we can change it. Um, and we are really working on these kind of biomarkers and also for translating that into clinical reality. We also founded a company, not of mental health diagnostic, to really uh, translate this something into reality. So I hope that could be my contribution, whether it works or not. I don't know. If you ask me for my wish, I would be really happy if in my lifetime I would see how this uh, brain-mind puzzle is cracked. Because I assume, let's say, simple, maybe retrospectively, once it is cracked, we would say, okay, how stupid were we? And it's so simple. But we didn't see it. Yeah. Hindsight is twenty twenty, as they always say, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree with what you say about uh, psychiatry as well. I mean, that's a discipline that I have always wanted to pursue. And I, I completely agree. I mean, like you said, it's very observational based how diagnostics work uh, in the field of psychiatry. And, you know, even how you're explaining how you study the brain is you can't use one method to study it. You have to use all these different combined techniques. And I think that should be applied to the field of psychiatry. So I, I like how all of your philosophies tend to connect. I guess that makes sense as you are a philosopher. Good. Yeah, that is that is awesome. It is so excellent to hear about your research um, and especially to have you in Ottawa is, is such an honor. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, this felt like such a brief talk. I feel like I could ask you questions for another hour or so, but that is all the time we have for today. Okay, good. Yeah. That's it for this week of Section. Make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for the latest interviews. As well, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Northoff's research, you can check out his website, georgenorthoff.com. As well, if you'd like to read more about his research and his thoughts on all these complex topics, uh, keep an eye out for his new book coming out called NeuroWaves.